I know what my decision is, which is not to decide. Before we turn to our text today, I'd like you to think of some of your most significant decisions. That was a big one, I think, for her. But maybe think about um, what college to go to. The private school that'll leave you with a lot of student loan debt, (laughs) or the state school that might not quite lead to the job that you're hoping for, whether to go to college at all. Should we move there for that job? It's a promotion, but will it be worth leaving family, friends, church? Should I ask her to marry me? She wonders, should I marry him? Should we break up? We just don't seem compatible. My wife, Cindy, one of her biggest decisions was whether to take me back months after I foolishly made the decision to break up with her. (laughs) And then when I asked her to marry me a while later, she surely wondered whether she could trust me. I like to think she made the right decision. Now think of some smaller choices, some seemingly insignificant decisions. Snickers or Milky Way. Google Maps suggests three routes which will be faster, which will have less traffic. Where should we go for lunch? Surely you're going to think about that at some point while I'm speaking. (laughs) And so will I. (laughs) Should I use the black pen or the blue? I had a teacher one time um, docked me a whole letter grade on an essay exam when I changed course midstream. I'd begun the exam, an essay exam, with a black pen, but the ink ran out, and I changed to a blue one. That's what I had. I got a B instead of an A. This was in high school. Challenging teacher. Actually, one of the best teachers I've had. Anyway, we're nearing the end here of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and what we see Jesus doing is presenting a choice. Before we get to that, though, let's look at how we got here. Jesus began his Sermon on the Mount by defining the character of those living in God's kingdom. We saw this in the Beatitudes, you remember. These people are poor in spirit. They realize their need for God's grace. They mourn over sin. They are humble They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful. Their hearts are pure. They work for peace. They are persecuted on account of Christ. Well, then Jesus gave his followers the two metaphors of salt and light, showing how those who live out the Beatitudes are to impact the world around them. Then he explained that God requires a righteousness or a right living that goes far beyond that of the religious leaders. And he presented them with example after example of what this supreme righteousness looks like. Then Jesus gave instructions regarding giving and praying and fasting, materialism, anxiety, and wrongly judging others. Finally, he capped his comments with what has been termed the golden rule. Matthew seven twelve: do to others what you would like them to do to you. This is the essence of all that is taught in the law and the prophets. So there's, there's a transition here. After all this, Jesus then starts a lengthy conclusion to his sermon, which we're beginning to look at today. You might go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew 7. 
In concluding this eighth-month sermon series, we'll look in these next three weeks at three different realities, certainties we're faced with in the rest of the chapter. See, what Jesus doesn't want us to do with his sermon is to ponder it, to critique it, and analyze it like it's a good bit of philosophy and moral teaching. He will not be relegated to a round table with the likes of Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Confucius, and others. So then Jesus is calling us to respond. As we'll see today, our options are limited. There are only two roads, and everybody is on one of the two. One is crowded, and one is deserted. Speaking of Google Maps, has this ever happened to you? Uh, Several years back, we were driving out west, as we've done many times. But apparently, I selected, uh, or the route was selected for me, that led us on some rather remote roads. You know how it is. You, you look around and you think, where did everyone else go? What's happened to the road? Sorry, kids. Google led us into the desert to kill us. <laughs> Google and Moses, that's what they do. Well, eventually we made it to civilization, but I'm thinking of the two paths that Jesus will speak of. I'm, I'm naturally reminded of uh, Frost's esteemed verse. I shall be telling this with a sigh. Somewhere ages and ages hence, two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. We'll see next week that fruit should be evident in the lives of those who've turned to Jesus. Either you've turned from your sins and Christ has changed your heart, and as such you're exhibiting bit by bit fruit like love and joy and peace, among others, Or you're still trusting yourself and rejecting Christ. And as a result, you're following, as Galatians 5 tells us, you're following the desires of your sinful nature. Finally, we'll see that the consequences are eternal. This is not a game. Nothing else in our lives is equivalent to this. Black or blue, ink, what college you go to, even who you marry, nothing compares with this decision. Jesus says, and we see in verses 24 to 27, that when the storm comes, one house will be standing on the rock and the other will collapse. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's, let's look at our text today. It's a brief one, actually, perhaps suggestive of a shorter sermon. We'll see. I won't make any promises. Before we read, let's pray. Holy Spirit, Pour out upon us your wisdom and understanding. We want to be taught by you in your scriptures. We want our hearts and minds to be open to receive all that leads to life and holiness. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Matthew 7 verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. When I was in school, I I hated true-false tests. I much preferred multiple choice. Now, you would think with true-false, hey, at least you have a 50-50 chance of getting the answer right. But my experience was that teachers constructed the true-false tests 
to be much harder. Everything seemed like a trick question. They were more difficult to figure out, I thought. My favorite, if you can have a favorite exam, my favorite were essay questions. I guess I was a good writer, and so I figured I could write enough that the correct answer might somehow be construed by a weary teacher grading papers on a Saturday night. (laughs) At minimum, uh, she would be impressed with my prose and give me some extra credit points. Only, of course, if I used the same ink throughout. Well, Jesus doesn't allow for a multiple choice. It's this one or that one. Not a little of this one and a little of that one and maybe a helping of those other ones. Jesus doesn't allow for what's called syncretism, which is the term for blending, religious, uh, blending together religions either to make sense of them or to force them to coexist. Jesus insists, no, that there is ultimately one choice from but two possibilities. And not deciding, as in the case of Cinderella, is actually deciding. First, there are two ways. We've seen this in in the Old Testament. Psalm 1 contrasts the way of the righteous with the way of the wicked. The godly delight in God's word and bear fruit and prosper, whereas the wicked are driven away like chaff and they perish. So here, the first way is easy. The word refers to broad and spacious and roomy. Pastor and, and author John Stott wrote, There is plenty of room on the way for for diversity of opinions and laxity of morals. It is the road of tolerance and permissiveness. It has no curbs, no boundaries of either thought or conduct. Travelers on this road follow their own inclinations, that is, the desires of the human heart in its fallenness. You don't have to teach what comes naturally. You don't teach children to be selfish they just are. You don't teach children to lie. They just do it to protect their self-interests. You don't teach impatience. We just are impatient, which is really just selfishness at the core. No effort is needed then to be selfish or to lie or to manipulate. We just do these things because of our sinful nature. That's why the broad road is easy. It doesn't impose any boundaries. Now, see, I think of music, and I, I always do that, but I think of music, and, and anyone can sit down at the piano and play what would be a, a cacophonous noise, right? It just... Sounds like some avant-garde type thing, but it might be rhythmic. There might be that, because you can, you know, we, we learn that kind of stuff. But until you're trained to stay within the confines of harmony, no one will want to hear what you have to play. Who would want to hear that for an hour? Not me. So it might be cute the first time that little Johnny or Sue bangs on the piano, but eventually you'll want to sign them up for lessons. They have to learn to stride along the narrow path of music, and then they can play something like that. So there is a narrow path in music and in so many other aspects of life. The hard way is narrow. It has clearly marked boundaries. 
It is restricted by what God has revealed in Scripture to be good and true, Stott says. Look at what celebrated author C.S. Lewis wrote in his autobiography. He was speaking of a time before he converted from atheism to Christ. I was soon in the famous words altering, I believe, to one does feel, and oh, the relief of it. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed into the cool evening twilight of higher thought, where there was nothing to be obeyed and nothing to be believed, except what was either comforting or exciting. In one sense, and probably many more, people today are no different than Jesus' original audience. They and we like to have our ears tickled. As one translation puts 2 Timothy 4.3, a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. We want our ears to be tickled or maybe you know, scratched might be more likely it. Tell me what I want to hear and don't tell me what I don't want to hear as Gwen Stefani once sang, don't speak, don't tell me, because it hurts. On the easy road, everything is okay. You can make nature your God if you'd like. You can worship nature, or meditation perhaps, morality, or sensuality, whichever. Pastor, author, professor R. Kent Hughes says that the road has plenty of room for everybody as long as your thinking doesn't turn to value judgments. Sure, you can compare and contrast philosophies, but don't even think about saying that one is better than the other or more right. He says, other than platitudes about the good of the majority or the consensus of the people, the wide road imposes few boundaries on conduct. It takes no effort to remain on its broad stretch. It inflicts a deceptive sense of freedom and independence. But the trip itself is all it has to offer. And it is an unsatisfying and it is unsatisfying throughout. Revealed truth imposes a limitation on what Christians can believe, and revealed goodness on how we are to behave. And this is hard. We have to resist what doesn't align with God's word no matter how much we want to believe it. And we have to resist the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature, Ephesians 2 says. You see, we constantly bump up against God's holy boundaries if we don't cross them in completely. We do this in thought and deed, which, again, is it's another reason why we must regularly practice confession that is, admitting to God when we fail to live as kingdom people and instead indulge our sinful nature. We own up to our sin, and we allow God to cleanse us once again. Not with a sense that we'll lose our standing with Him, which was purchased by the blood of His Son. No, we do so with a desire to live openly and honestly before God. So yes, the way is difficult, but on this hard way... Our thoughts about God and truth, as one commentary puts it, are both enlarged and confined. You see, Christ's hard and narrow way is also to be embraced as his easy yoke and light burden. 
I like how the message puts these words of Jesus, well-known and treasured by many. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. So there are two ways, and there are two gates. The gate leading to the easy way is wide. It, it, it takes no effort to get on this road. Uh, one uh, thing that I read pointed out that there is no limit to the luggage we can take with us. Remember when you used to fly and they didn't charge you for luggage, so you brought <laughs> everything? I think of all the luggage that we took on our, on our mission trip to Poland. Uh, we each had a suitcase for clothes and a, and a personal carry-on, but we'd, we also took along two acoustic guitars, three electric guitars, one keyboard, one bass guitar, one bass drum kick pedal, four or five cymbals, one drum throne, several guitar stands, a whole case of cables, another duffel filled with processors, and, oh, one ukulele, which took up the least room. If we go next time, we might do well to assemble an a cappella group or maybe a harmonica ensemble. I'm, I, I racked my brain for hours trying to limit our equipment. What, could, what, can, what do we need and what, what can we leave behind? I was measuring guitar cases for linear inches so that we wouldn't go over 62 inches because that'd be a $200 surcharge. Weighing cases and bags to make sure that they were under the 50 pounds to, again, avoid the $200 surcharge. The commentary says, there is evidently no limit to the luggage we can take with us. We need, we need leave nothing behind not even our sins, self-righteousness, or pride. We don't have to change it all. We can keep on, to contrast the Sermon on the Mount, we can keep on sinning in our anger. We can keep on lusting, making promises we don't intend to keep, taking revenge on those who've wronged us, going on without a concern for the needy, we can keep on accumulating more and more money and things for our own satisfaction. And we're certainly welcome to hypocritically judge others. To go through the wide gate, we don't have to leave any of this behind. Conversely, the gate leading to the hard way is narrow. And to enter the gate, we must leave everything behind. This includes, Stott says, sin, selfish ambition, covetousness, even, if necessary, family and friends. For no one can follow Christ who is not first denied himself. Entering this gate is to enter a life of self-denial, which is the reason it is so unpopular. Why, as we'll see, so few go through it. Now, let's be careful here. In one sense, we want to avoid the label of narrow-mindedness. We, we certainly don't want to be exclusive and self-righteous like the Pharisees in Jesus' crowd, the religious leaders. We also don't want to be closed-minded and inflexibly dogmatic about issues the Bible is not clear on. However, Jesus calls us to embrace narrowness in this manner, in the manner that there is only one road that leads to life as we'll see. As I mentioned, in one way, our thoughts about God are narrowed. Some beliefs about God are true and others are false. Nearly true, perhaps, but false. 
Tell me all your thoughts on God, the Dishwala song in the 90s. But see, some views of God are degrading and some are exalting. In believing the truth as revealed in God's word, our vision of God goes far beyond anything that we could have imagined. Look at what Stott says. The biblical vision of God is electrifying. Who would ever have dreamed of a God who was not confined by nature, but was above nature, who holds things together by the word of his power, who is our father, but who also became a man in order to redeem us? So we are brought to an incredibly spectacular, immense conception of God. Our thoughts on salvation are also narrowed in the same way. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So when we preach through Christ, when we preach salvation through Christ, we must do so. We have no choice but to do so narrowly. Acts 4 says, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And speaking of gates, Jesus calls himself the gate. John 10, yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. So there are two ways and two gates, and there are two destinations Moses put forth a similar choice to the children of Israel, all joking aside about Moses. In Deuteronomy 30, he said, Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. And and God also spoke this through the prophet Jeremiah. He said, Behold, or look, listen, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And so now here, Jesus echoes Moses and Jeremiah in presenting a choice of life or destruction. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Now, Jesus doesn't expound here on his use of the word destruction. Uh, Many scholars assume Jesus is referring to what we think of as hell. But allowing space for conjecture, I think Stott clarifies this well. He says, he did not define, Jesus did not define what he meant by this. And presumably, the precise nature of hell is as much beyond our finite understanding as the precise nature of heaven. But the terrible word destruction, terrible because God is properly the creator, not the destroyer, and because humans were created to live, not die. Well, it seems at least to give us liberty to say that everything good, everything good will be destroyed in hell. Love and loveliness, beauty and truth, joy, peace and hope, and that forever. It is a prospect too awful to contemplate without tears, for the broad road is a suicide road. There's so much good in God's world, evidences of his grace and provision. Yes, evil in every unimaginable form runs rampant, like in Charlottesville. Evil is allowed to just do what it wants, but not without restraint, even if it doesn't feel that way. 
or look that way. God, in His mercy, has not forsaken His creation. He did not walk away. But see, those who take the easy road and go through the wide gate are headed to eternal destruction, separation from God for all eternity. That is the ultimate destination of so many. And it is not an undeserved judgment. Look at Romans 2. Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you were stubborn and refused to turn from your sin, you were storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they've done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. The gospel, which means good news, must start with the bad news, which is what Paul did in this letter to the Romans. But he eventually gets to this in in chapter 3. Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. If you haven't trusted Christ as the sacrifice for your sins, then God's judgment is still hanging over you. You're headed for destruction. But if you have put your trust in Christ as the substitutionary sacrifice for your sins, meaning he took the place where you should be. If you have trusted Christ as the sacrifice for your sins, then you are headed for a different destination, life. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. This eternal life should be understood in terms of fellowship or communion with God. It's a, it's a close relationship with God the Creator. Life begins here, but it is perfected hereafter. In the time when we will see fully and share in His glory and discover complete fulfillment, fulfillment as human beings reflecting the image of Christ in selfless service to God and to each other. It's been rightly said that the glory of God is man and woman fully alive. We will be. We are becoming who we were always meant to be. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. King David sang about this destination as well as the journey to this life. Look at his, his song. This is a good life. My heart is glad. My soul is full of joy. My body is at rest. Who could want for more? You will not abandon me to experience death in the grave or leave me to rot alone. Instead, you direct me on the path 
that leads to a beautiful life. As I walk with you, the pleasures are never ending. And I know true joy and contentment. I would love to end there, but we must address the two groups of people Jesus mentions, the the many and the few. Let's look at these together. What is meant by few? When I was a kid, I I learned to interpret the way my mother would answer me. We, We did that as kids, didn't we? Yes and no were easy. Maybe usually led to an eventual yes. Well, I don't know, often resulted in no. A couple was always two. A few meant three, and several referred to four or more. I don't think we can take the same approach with Jesus as I did with my mom. If we did, then few would mean only three of us would make it. No, we, we must compare Scripture with Scripture. So put Jesus' teaching here alongside John's vision of the redeemed before God's throne. Look at Revelation 7. I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a mighty shout, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. It is a vast crowd, a multitude too great to count. I'm not sure how we reconcile these two concepts, and I'm also not sure how this passage relates to the problem of those who've never heard the gospel, a dilemma that has and continues to confound Bible scholars. We shouldn't become preoccupied with a question that even Jesus declined to answer. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few be saved? And he replied, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom, for many will try to enter it, but will fail. So instead of speculating on the number of those who will be saved, we should, as, as one commentary says, strive first to enter the narrow gate. We should strive first to enter the narrow gate ourselves, and then we should focus on our master's universal authority and his command to make disciples from all the nations of the earth. I love that picture of Revelation. It's one of the reasons I like uh, watching the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. You see the, the parade of nations and the flags and all the different colors of, of, of dress and the people, the way they look different. I love that because that to me is a picture of the book of Revelation. Well, even though there is and will be a multitude of those who have chosen and will choose the rigorous way to life that Jesus outlines, this amount will be relatively few compared with all of humanity. And as we'll see next week, I think, we'll see that many will be surprised to discover they've been on the wrong road. They walked through the wrong gate. As I uh, invite the team back to lead us, I I must address the undecided Cinderella passed the decision onto the prince, as we saw, to see if he would come looking for her. You see, it's similar with Christ. He came to seek and save the lost. But we must still make the decision to go with him. 
understand that among those who will discover they've been on the wrong road will be what some call cultural Christians. Even regular churchgoers who, say, vote certain ways. They are those who follow only Christian traditions rather than Christ himself. And please hear me on this. Your leaders and, and, and I would be tragically misguided if we thought that everyone who is a member here or attends regularly, that they enter the narrow gate and are walking along the hard road. So before you come to another worship gathering or you attend another Bible study or, or small group or etch or anything else, you need to ask yourself, have I really made the decision to follow Christ? Is it the narrow gate I, I entered? Am I walking the hard road? Am I submitting to the authority of God's word? When I'm confronted with something I disagree with, whose argument wins? God's or mine? Am I putting to death my sinful nature or am I indulging it? Am I allowing Christ to live through me? Am I permitting God's spirit to renew my thoughts and my attitudes? Is God's kingdom and his righteousness my focus? Or am I chasing after what the world values? These are questions that require serious examination. They go beyond true, false, and multiple choice. I'd love to hand out college-ruled fill paper and for you to write your answers in essay form, and you could use black or blue ink or both. I don't care. But we're not going to hand out paper. What we're going to do is take some time for prayer. There's a guide in your bulletin, and we're going to try to show it on the screens I'd like you to use this time to start the conversation with God, but continue the conversation later. Nothing else is more important. I implore you to carve out more time to get alone with God and work through this guide. Maybe even talk with your your husband or your wife, your kids. Are we as a family on the hard road or the easy road? Pray together and commit to following Christ and being among the few to take the road less traveled by. It's not a one-time decision. It's a choice that we make every morning we wake up and throughout the day. Will I take up my cross? That is, will I kill my selfish desires and follow Christ? Let's spend some time talking with God.